Good singing. You may be seated. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles this evening, and we will be first in just a few moments in the book of Romans. But I will be truthful with you tonight. We are going to be all over the Bible tonight. Last week of the two messages on the state of Israel was much easier. And you say, well, it was pretty complicated. It was much easier, (laughs) I can promise you. Tonight we're going to actually, uh, my notes are three pages, three half pages, maybe a fourth, but most of them are just Bible verses, and you say, well, that is cheating. It's not, because when you see the Bible verses, you'll realize we're going to be dealing with prophecy. Now, some of your minds just went, all right, it's prophecy night here at Georgetown. Uh, That's fine, uh, if you like that. We're not going to go deep into Uh, the Gentiles that are in it, we're we're going to be focused on Israel and looking at certain aspects of that. Uh, But for our purposes, uh, we certainly will be uh, dealing with some of the end times uh, events. So if you will, we'll read um, beginning, actually, I said, I think I said verse uh, chapter 11, verse chapter 10. And begin reading this evening in verse number 18. In fact, we're going to do so much reading tonight. The rec specs are coming out. I have to read it because there's a lot of reading that we'll do. And I want to make sure I I read and say exactly what the Bible says and not miss words. Because sometimes in prophecy, if you miss a word like a not or a never, it turns the whole prophecy on its head. And so we need to be careful with with this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 18, But I say... Have they not heard, and the, hear, the people hearing here are the Israelites, those who are Jews. He says, <clears throat> Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. By the way, he's speaking of us. In this passage, those who are not Jews, those who are not of those who rejected Jesus Christ. He says, I was, Isaiah says, I was made manifest unto them that ask not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll jump in doing some refreshing from last week. And then we'll move forward and look at the whole understanding of who Israel is and what their state is in the eyes of Almighty God. Father, help us in this teaching time as we turn our thoughts to your word. In seasons of uncertainty, where we seem to have lack clarity in what we ought to do and what should happen, we are glad to come and find that clarity in the word of God. You have not only spelled out how you will act and what you will do when you act, but you filled in certain details even for us to have a glimpse into when you will act. And so I pray that you'll help us this evening as we look at many of these truths. Bless us as we go through the scriptures. May we guard ourselves and our minds carefully as we look into them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Conflict in Israel has been a reality really, whenever Israel has been 
a nation in existence. When they've not been in existence, there doesn't seem to be much conflict in the Middle East. But every time that they have been an organized nation in their land, there seems to be conflict. Listen to this hit list that I came up with over the last two or three weeks as I was thinking about all the different peoples, both in the past and in the present, who have made war with this tiny little people, Israel, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Romans. Israel also has always been persecuted by her neighbors. Today, those neighbors who have persecuted her somewhere since 1948 include Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and not just nation states, but people groups, Hamas, the Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah. All of these throughout history have tried to eradicate them as a people. So I ask the question as we open, why all this hatred? What say you? It's a Sunday night, so we usually take a little bit different direction in the teaching on Sunday night than we do in the preaching on Sunday morning. Why do you think there is all this hatred for Israel? Go ahead, Harry. We are very informal. You can yell it out. Go ahead, Harry. Exactly. Anybody else want to add some context to that? Or your own opinion to it? They worship the one true God. By the way, why are we the great Satan and they're the little Satan? Because we used to worship as a nation the one true God. What are some other thoughts? They're the chosen people. These are all the similar thoughts. Here's what I put in my notes just to know that we're all crazy together or we're all right together. Right? I put this. The answer, I think, is God has a special plan for Israel. And Satan hates that. Whatever God loves, Satan hates. Satanically influenced hatred of Israel, and especially Israel's God, we might say, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the reason that their neighbors have always wanted to see them wiped off the map. Whether it was Sennacherib with the Assyrian Empire, Haman in Persia, whether it was Hitler in Germany, or presently today, Rouhani in Iran, attempts to destroy Israel completely, can I encourage you tonight, will always fail. So if I were to give just a placard to this in summation before we get to the end, the state of Israel is always going to be fine, whether we support them or not. Now, that doesn't exempt us from our responsibilities to the one true God of heaven. If He loves them, we ought to love them. If He's going to protect them, we ought to provide for them. But the persecutors of Israel, my friend, they will come and they will go. But the persecution will remain until Jesus Christ physically sets up His millennial kingdom. The rapture on the prophetical timeline is the next thing that will happen. Beyond that, everything is prophecy, which means we must warily, that is carefully, state what will factually happen and not read into it what we think or want to happen. 
I always put that caution. Probably once a year, I decide to walk into a message or two on prophecy because I think prophecy helps us to get hope. I, I don't want you to think tonight, Pastor really is talking down about prophecy. Prophecy is all through the scriptures. The reason it was given in the Old Testament about, about the first coming of the Messiah is so that when the Messiah came, hope was realized because the proverb says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when God says something's going to happen and it happens, man, there's joy in that. There's, there's confidence in that. There's strength in that. And so prophecy is, in fact, a good thing, even though we must warily approach the understanding of it. Here's what the Bible says about Israel in the end times. And I'm going to give a, a broad brushstroke, and then we'll come through, review last week, and go forward in the message this week. This was a sermon when I began putting it together that I actually... I actually thought could fit on one Sunday night, but then I realized it's nine points, and you don't want to stay here that long, so I broke it up over two Sunday nights for us, okay? Here's the next thing that we know, especially as prophecy pertains, that pertains to Israel. There will be a mass return of the Jews to the land. You could look these up in Deuteronomy 30, Isaiah 43, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36, and Ezekiel 37. There is a mass return to the land of their nativity. The next thing that we would find for Israel is that Antichrist will make a seven-year covenant or contract of peace with Israel, according to Isaiah 28 and Daniel chapter number 9 in verse 27. Third, we, will find that we would find that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's Daniel 9 and verse 27. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelations chapter 11 and verse 1. The Antichrist then will break his covenant with Israel and worldwide persecution of them will be the result. Again, I can give you a list of scriptures. Daniel 9, Daniel 12. Dan, or Zechariah 11, Matthew 24, Revelation 12. The point is there's proof all through the scriptures of these next factual events that will happen. We then understand that Israel will be invaded. Not all the way to Jerusalem, but in the valley or in Megiddo in Armageddon where it will happen in that valley in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And I mentioned last week that every player that needs to play on each team is already on the right team. There's not one player on any of the teams that is going to be in that tribulation period marching towards Jerusalem that isn't already perfectly aligned geopolitically. No G8, no G20, no G9, no any governmental authorities of great nations is, in, is askew. Now, we may have certain alliances and agreements with each other, but in the fact of who we're supporting and which sides we've decided to pick, do you know the only country that's playing both sides? Us. Do you know the only one that's not mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Us. Well, it's because we're protecting them. That would be noble. I think that would be great. I think in the tribulation with no Christians here, that's a far-fetched thought. Food for thought. Next, we find in their prophetic timeline, Israel will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah. We will look at this part in Zechariah chapter 12 tonight. Then Israel will be regenerated, restored, and fully regathered for their millennial kingdom, which is in Jeremiah 33 Ezekiel chapter 11, and then Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. So last week, 
we saw that the state of Israel began with, and I, if you have notes, you can just follow along. There's not a, not a lot of guessing that we need to do on this front. The state of Israel began with what? God's covenants, right? We looked at four of those covenants. If you remember, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant, the Davidic covenant of a seed of David and his house will sit on the throne forever. And then finally, we looked in Jeremiah briefly at the fact that there is a millennial covenant. There is an unconditional covenant for them. But then we saw the second point that there is the conditions for their success. God gave them some conditions in Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 30, 31, and 32. If you do these things, you will be in the land. If you don't do these things, you'll be removed. There's punishment that will come. It doesn't mean that God won't fully and ultimately keep these unconditional ones, but the promise of them being the light and the salt in the world was conditioned upon them obeying and following Him, their faith in Him, and they didn't. We saw the third point then last week was the crimes of refusal and rejection. They as a people refused to obey God in the Old Testament. And ultimately, when the Messiah came, literally fulfilling prophecy perfectly, riding on the ass of a colt, coming into the city, they rejected him. That led to the consequences of their sin. When you reject God, ultimately and out of hand, God rejects you. There was a removal of them. We finished by looking then last week at the conduits of blessing. Though they were cursed or judged by God, He promised always a remnant to remain. And those remnant Jews have survived in different lands across the world. And we said predominantly they went to the ten tribes of Israel in Assyria, made it to uh, the city or the, the nation states in the early days, of Europe, and ultimately, many came to the United States. This leads us tonight to our first point in the outline, and that is castaway Israel. What is Israel the castaway? Well, if you look here in Romans, where we began our reading this evening, we find the truth of these things. But but I wanted to show you a map. This is what present-day castaway Israel looks like. Now, it's kind of faint. I, I think you can see there's a silhouette of the globe there. But according to the Jewish Agency for Israel, and if you can read Hebrew, I can't remember it, but there's a Hebrew reading that is there. You're welcome. This is theirs, not mine. Kyle didn't do a survey. I didn't do a poll. This is their understanding and tracking of where their population centers is. Look at what it says. Number one, 6.9 million Jews live in Israel today. How many live in America? That is amazing. Amazing. The next closest country is France. Do you know why most of them ended up in France? It's because they fled Germany. The fact that Germany still has 118,000 on this list is dumbfounding to me. But they do. This is where they are scattered 
to the wind. And it's wonderful if you go and read Deuteronomy chapter 30 in particular, the first five to six verses, he starts talking about bringing them away or bringing them back from their captivity, bringing them from being spread to the wind. If they will return or when they will return, they will literally come from the four corners of the earth. And it's always interesting to me. You can go read it. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 4 It says, even if you're scattered to the outermost part of heaven. I dropped that nugget on Zach during his ordination training early this year. I said, did you know that God can even bring Jews back from outer space? I mean, that phrase, if you look at the original Hebrew in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 4, literally, they can be scattered anywhere and God will bring them back. He said, it doesn't matter where you are. I, as your God, when you turn to me, will bring you back. Even if you're in the farthest reaches of outer space. When I read that and figured it in a sense of deep study what that means, it doesn't mean God is saying they're there. But even the stuff we're doing today, oh yeah? What if we build a moon base and there's some Israelites on the moon base? Deuteronomy 30 and verse 4. Oh, your Bible has an answer for that? Yes, it's got an answer for everything. God's not surprised by any of it. Here's what we need to understand. If you're here in Romans with me, look in chapter 9 of Romans. I want to be careful how I say this on the castaway Israelites. But reading the book of Romans, and I'm not going to go lengthy into this. The guys that study Romans with me, if they've made it to 9, 10, and 11, they know what I believe Romans 9, 10, and 11 are talking about. I do not believe in the great treatise of our salvation and the doctrine of salvation that Paul gives to us in Romans. That chapters 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with us as the elect. He is dealing directly with the Jews who were there in that church who themselves are the elect, who themselves have been chosen by God. I believe we are the wild branch grafted in, as we'll read tonight. But when you get into chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, you pick up the reading and you find the Bible says this in verse number 32. He says, wherefore, and what he's asking is what he found in verse 31, but Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. They can't keep the law because they don't have faith truly in the God who gave the law. But he says, wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it, is, but as it were by the works of the law. In other words, they just did it outwardly. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Verse 33, if you're there in the Bible, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews who had rejected Jesus. Specifically. Who were now part of this group that was going to be cast away. We're going to find that when we get to chapter 11 of Romans. He's no longer talking about our sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He's now talking about the state of Israel and their suspension of the conditional covenant that was given to them. Why is not God not blessing us anymore? And the answer is because you've rejected Him. Paul's got to address it with them so that we, the Gentiles, who have benefited of this grace of God, can receive it. And so we read or begin reading where we started in our text in chapter 10. By the way, if you read chapter 10, chapter 10 for salvation... 
when you do the Romans road, you finish in 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10 and verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We use that for salvation for everyone, but contextually within Romans, it is actually addressing the Jews who should be receiving Jesus Christ this way now. It's a change. I didn't write it, God wrote it. Paul's explaining this mystery to us. But he says what we read in verse number 18. And by the way, just before 18, he's said wonderful things like this. How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe? Verse 40, in whom they've not heard. How shall they preach? Verse 15, except they be sent. He's not talking just about missionary endeavors. Contextually, he is talking about those Jews who need to hear the gospel message. And so he says in verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? I mean, didn't all of the rabbis and all of the teachers in the Sanhedrin, didn't all of the people in all of the synagogues spread across the entire Roman Empire, did they not tell them about these things? Did those Jews not give them what their faith is? He says, yes, verily, their sound or the words themselves went into all the earth, their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation will I, I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold. He's very specific is what we're talking about. And saith, I was found of them that sought me not. That's you and I. Nobody in the Roman Empire was looking for a Messiah named Jesus Christ, but the Jews were. They missed him. We got him. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. But to Israel, he saith all day long, verse 21, I have stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now keep the passage going. In verse number, or chapter number 11, verse number 1, I say then, okay, so what do we say to this? Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Well, it sure seems that way. You put the point calling them cast away Israel. Well, they seem to be spread to the wind. But he says, have I cast them away? In other words, have I done away with them forever? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Oh, here's what foreknowledge is about. Pertains to Israel and his plan for them. Watch ye not, or know ye not, that the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, he's talking about Elijah. He said, he's out there, out there on the mountain. I'm the only guy left. They have killed thy prophets. Dig down thy altars, and I am left alone. They seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I've reserved to myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time, or Paul saying right now as I'm writing this, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He's not talking about our salvation by grace. He's talking about the choosing of the state of Israel. The Bible is very clear. We muddy the waters. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That sounds like a confusing passage, but it's actually pretty straightforward. You didn't earn it. It was free, Israel. God choosing Abraham, it was free to him. And it's free to you as the remnant, as you believe in him. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In other words, the remnant of those Israelites who understood, Paul himself, Peter, those Jews who got it, got it. 
According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should see, not ears that they should not hear. And unto this day, David saith, let their table be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. For what reason? To provoke them to what? Jealousy. You ever sit down and have a conversation with a devout Jew and tell them you're a Christian, you are in for an interesting conversation. Verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world or the great benefit to the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, Paul asks rhetorically. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify or I'm putting focus on my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. In other words, they need to understand salvation by grace through faith. They've missed it. But if they're the remnant, if they're the ones that God has chosen, then they can be saved. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? In other words, the making new of this dead old world. And we will see in a few moments that is true. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, those Gentiles of the church, you and I, being a wild... Being a wild olive tree, were graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness or health of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. This is why we don't run down the Jewish state. Don't boast against them. God loves them. You should too. It's essentially what he's saying. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. You didn't earn this. You didn't do anything. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, fear, or have reverent respect. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if, conditional, thou continue in his goodness." Otherwise thou shalt also be cut off, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. In other words, if they come around to a faith by repentance, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery or this confusing time, if you will. That which you and I don't understand in the workings of God. But Paul is explaining it pretty clearly, pretty expressly here. Don't boast, just be glad. Rejoice, not that they were cast away, but in them rejecting God, it opened it to the rest of us. I mean... I wouldn't say if I had a time machine, I would go back and say, go get them, Jews. Yes, I'd like to be brought in. But that is our benefit. 
He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, your own ideas, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. What? Yeah, all that remain at that time. Now, he's moved expressly forward from verse 25 in the age of grace to the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's quite a jump. But the Bible does that often, and so you have to read very carefully. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. We're going to look at this in the next point in just a moment. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies. They're enemies of who? They're enemies of Christ. They're enemies of God's plan. Why? For your sakes. But as touching election or God's choosing, they are beloved for the Father's sake. It is interesting here, the Father's is plural possessive. It doesn't seem to be God the Father. It means Abraham our Father. Why were they chosen? By the faith of Abraham. If you really want to nerd out on Romans, go back to Romans chapter 4, and you'll find the imputed righteousness that is given to Abraham because of faith. Verse 29, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, without changing. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy, notice your mercy, our mercy, my mercy, they also may obtain mercy. That is our objective right now. These castaway Israelites need to know about Jesus Christ, and we have him. That's literally what Paul's begging them to do. Now he's broadening back out from the state of Israel to the Gentiles in the Roman church. And he's saying, hey, you need to be witnessing to these people. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might, ha- might have mercy upon, a- mercy upon all. Then he kind of breaks into a Pauline statement that he often does. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor, or who hath first given to Him, and it shall shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The point is, these Israelites today... Their state is that they are in a castaway, cut-off position. But God still has a promise with them, and He will bring them back together. Which brings us to the next point, that is their challenge in the tribulation. What is another name for the tribulation? Jacob's trouble. And it's not Jacob that lives down the street from you. Does anybody know why it's called Jacob's trouble? Why isn't it called Israel's trouble? Come on, some of you know it. It's just Sunday night. Maybe your team is on or maybe they've already finished playing and you're distracted. What is the difference between Jacob and Israel? Yes, Jacob speaks to his flesh. Israel is his new name. When he wrestles with God and God cripples his flesh, he from that point is not called Jacob anymore. He's called Israel. And all of the children that come from him are called the children of Israel. They're not called the children of Jacob. But here's the truth. It is 98% accurate. I'm trying to actually think on the fly what, what the one time, I think it's in the book of Jeremiah, and it might be Jeremiah 16 or 17, when the name Jacob is used and it's not in a negative sense. But when you read prophecy... 
and God refers to Jacob, he is always referring to their fleshly side, their carnal nature, their sinfulness. And when he says Israel, or when he says Israel and Judah, he's always referencing referencing the God-ordained divine self in them, the change of name, the change of nature that comes. And so when Daniel writes, and when Jeremiah writes, and when others write, and they tell us that there is trouble for Jacob that is coming, it's telling us that those carnal, separated, unbelieving Jews are going to have trouble. There's no amount of praying for peace for them that can change the trouble that is coming the world's way and their way. It is the final seven years when they cut off Messiah to finish the 490 that needed to be completed. It was actually 483 years from the day that the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in Nehemiah's day until Jesus Christ rode in on that donkey as he entered in on that city day. Had they received him, the seven years would have been completed and they would have had their Messiah and we would have had no salvation. But they rejected him and because of that rejection, Paul's just told us salvation is open to us, yet there's seven years of trouble to get to 490 that is still theirs. And that is called the tribulation. Turn with me to Revelation 12. Poor John in the back is doing a great job. All I gave him with my three pages of notes, I'm literally on the last page of my notes. I just gave him a bunch of Bible verses. He's doing a great job staying right with me. If you talk to him after church, he might say he's back there going like this, I can't do it! Pull up! Pull up! You're doing great. Teresa knows. He's wonderful. The tribulation is a challenge for Israel, for Jacob, I should say. Revelation 12. Does anybody know what Revelation 12 is about? You can read it quick if you're a quick reader, but uh, just off the top of your head, what is it about? And even if you're a know-it-all, you can go ahead and know it all and answer tonight. Yeah. A dragon attacks a woman. I mean, it's like the stuff of fantasy novels. You say, what? Does what? Satan attacks Israel. She's the woman, he's the dragon. Here's what the Bible says in Revelation. It's a wonderful drop-in chapter, right in the middle of all of the chaos of Revelation and the apocalypse that is on. God gives a narrative of what has always been and what will be as it finishes out. It shows us a good picture of what the tribulation times will be like. The Bible says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. By the way, this is the fulfillment of what Nebuchadnezzar saw. This is the fulfillment of what Daniel himself prophesied. These are the seven and ten. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven. That is the third host of the uh, the heavens, uh, the, the angelic realm that fell with him. And did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. He wanted to ruin, as Harry mentioned, the Messiah as soon as it came out. No, no, no. You can't overcome God's plans. He's sovereign. But we continue to read. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. 
And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God or by God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. This is from the great tribulation when it begins on the midpoint. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. What he's talking about here are the witnesses in the tribulation. They will be martyred for the name of Jesus Christ, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short Time. Yeah, he's just got three and a half years. Could you imagine being an angelic being, nearly a demigod, not God himself, but nearly all-powerful, like Satan, like Lucifer is, and being told, or at least knowing, I'm convinced the devil and his angels, they know the Bible far better than we do. They just don't believe it. Jesus said he's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He knows every part of it. He just doesn't believe it's true. He thinks he can beat it. But he knows that if and when all of this happens and the power to enter, it seems, into the heavens, why that is, I don't know. Where that is, I don't know. But it is, as it's stated, he will no longer have access and he knows what the book says. It says when that happens, it's three and a half years. It's just a short time. Could you imagine being free to roam the earth low these six and a half thousand years, doing without opposition, nearly everything without impunity that you desire to do, and to know, window's up, bud. Clock's on. The countdown has begun. I mean, he can go back here and read how many days it's going to be. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted who? The woman. Who is the full rage of Satan going to be against in the tribulation? Mankind? No, no, no. God's wrath is against the sinfulness of mankind. But in the tribulation, Satan's unmitigated wrath will be directed only, exclusively, at Israel. Which brought forth that man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. Now, this is the only time in the Bible that I could argue we find the United States of America. God bless them. Right, here it is. Us in England, we are the two eagles. Both of our countries have chosen these as symbols of our strength and power. He gives to her two wings of a great eagle. Okay, it might be us. Could be. It would be wonderful if it was. I do believe a lot of people who will be left behind when the rapture happens, who know believers, will say, how did this happen? And I think there will be a great turning to the truth of the Word of God because it's going to be a world falling apart. So it's possible. But I can't prove it. Remember what I said about prophecy. Don't say something you don't know. The serpent, excuse me, 
Lost my place, I was so excited. She might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's a year and a year and a half of a year. From the face of the serpent, and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. That phrase in prophecy, water as a flood, it's just masses of humanity. They were literally going to have hunting groups. They're going to have massive soldiers, massive armed forces chasing that woman, the Israelites, wherever they go in the world. that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you say, it stops there? It stops there until Revelation 19. We go back to the trials and tribulations of mankind in that tribulation period. Satan will hunt the 144,000 Jews. If you wanted to read about them, you could read about them at the beginning of Revelation chapter 14. Always remember the 144,000, they're mentioned at the beginning of Revelation 14. 1414, it's an easy way to keep it straight in your mind. Here's how the tribulation will close. Take your Bible and turn back to Zechariah. One of the most graphic passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. All of the kids just sat up and said, oh, sweet, really? Too bad hardly any of them are in here. Right on time. Zechariah chapter 12, and Zechariah is a careful read, I might say. It's written before any of the gospel age, 487 years before Jesus Christ set foot on this earth. In the days that Nehemiah himself was, or excuse me, uh, Ezra was building in the temple just before Nehemiah comes. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 9, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations. Now, I, I, I wanted to warn Zach in the singing tonight. It is true that God loves all nations. We sang that tonight. It is not an untrue song. But understand, when his wrath is being poured out, his love has been expended. It's been spent. And so what we're reading here in Zechariah is not the love, mercy, and grace. By the way, the feel-good church people of the world are in for a rude awakening. And I hate that because there's probably many who think they're saved and they're right with God, and they're not. We don't say that to mock them. We say that to warn but he says, in that, <clears throat> and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. In other words, they'll recognize we had the Messiah. He is the Messiah. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn every family. Notice what they're going to be like in that day. Every family ripped apart. The word apart here literally means forcibly removed from each other. The family of the house of David apart, their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart, their wives apart. The family of the house of Levi apart, their wives apart. The family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Tribulation is going to be very, very hard on them. It's going to be very difficult for them. 
If you look back, I don't have it in the overhead, but look back in the Bible and look at what it says in the siege of Jerusalem when the beast and his armies are set against them. It says this in verse 4, looking back there. It says, In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with an astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts. In that day, verse 6, will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about them on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even Jerusalem, the Lord shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. And that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David or as a, a, a valiant leader. And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. God will protect them. But trouble's coming. And that leads us to our third thought this evening, our third point that we need to fill in, and that is their champion, Jesus Christ. I have a couple more passages to read for us. John, I'm going to do them out of order. I'm going to read Zechariah 14 first, and then I will circle back in the famous words of one press secretary to Revelation 19 in just a moment. Since we're here in Zechariah, and sometimes it's hard to find Zechariah, Let's read how the champion arrives. By the way, if your title is the Christ, the anointed one, and you're the champ, you should not just come timidly in. That's, by the way, why the Jews had a hard time with Jesus, their king, the first time he came. He came humbly, humble, riding upon the foal of an ass, the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 14, and we'll read it, and I'll read it quickly. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. In other words, you're not going to have to earn it. You don't have to, it's just going to be done for you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great, very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half toward the south, literally, Jesus, when he comes down, is not coming down going, Ooh, let me just fancy land. He's coming down like a comet. Boom! And the mountain will divide. I mean, that, that's somebody that's like, ah, I got this. I'm in control. We, we watch these silly superhero movies, right? And Superman flies in carrying an airplane or something. Man, he's got nothing on who actually God is. And we let our feeble minds think that we know what God is. Literally, he lands and he splits a mountain in two. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. In other words, his glorious presence is going to be there in their midst. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters, what a, what a hallelujah moment this is in verse 8, shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord. 
and his name one or unified and all the land. And what, what that statement, let me pause for a second. What that statement tells me is that today the Jews or the state of Israel, those who are religious, they worship Jehovah, Yahweh God. And we worship who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. And what he says in that day, he'll unify all of it. It'll be a singular worship. There won't be any more confusion of those who are his people. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. It shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin's gate into the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananiel under the king's winepress. And men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Notice the gruesomeness. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. No, I won't say it. Sometimes as a pastor you have to work through things in your mind, figure out if it's from your flesh or from the Spirit, and that wasn't from the Spirit. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their Holes. Their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor. And his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, apparel, and great abundance. And so shall be the plague of horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, of the beast. That shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship. Now the battle's won. Listen, if you're watching the person next to you melt, literally disintegrate in front of you, what are you going to do against that? I'm pretty sure the people that are there by military order are going to go, I am not fighting that. This is one order I will disobey. God knows our hearts. Those who have rejected Him will be gone. That is literally what it says. In other passages, uh, let's go to Revelation. I think we have it up there, don't we, John? Revelation 19. Here's the other picture of the champion arriving. There's many pictures. I could have gone to at least five other passages and really taken the time to drill this point home. But the point is the champion, the Christ, when He comes... It's pretty awesome. The state of Israel's got really nothing to worry about because Jesus is ultimately, God is ultimately on their side. In chapter 19 of Revelation, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called, what a name, faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. In other words, this war is righteous, is by a right action. His eyes were as a flame of fire. I wonder what melted those people in Zechariah. The gaze or the look of Jesus. The eyes of Jesus are a flaming fire, the Bible says. On his head were many crowns. Where did he get those crowns, by the way? From us, from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We are given crowns for the work we do on earth for him, and we offer them back to him. And he's wearing them on his head when he comes back. He says, hey, all you people that persecuted my Christians, I'm their God. Look up here. Remember when they tried to witness to you and they got a crown for that? 
That one's right there. I don't think he's going to be arrogant like that. I don't think he's going to be caustic like that. But the point is, he is our revenger. You don't need to be. He goes on and he says, and he had a new name written that no man knew but he himself. Boy, that's an interesting thought. I wish I could preach more about that. I have no idea what that means. Nor do you. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Of course it was. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Do you know how to ride a horse? We in Kentucky are privileged. (laughs) We know how to ride horses. So some of those city folk that are saved are going to have a hard time. No, they're not. They're going to be perfect in their perfect horses. I kind of have an idea of Narnia in this day, right? Strawberry, the horse, becomes whatever the cool name in horse was after it was strawberry. And it goes flying around Narnia. I think this is what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he was writing about that. Clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean, that's us, the redeemed. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. That is the Bible, the Word of God. That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepresses, the press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is not tiddlywinks, Jesus, as Edward once said. This is Jesus the conqueror. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, what did they put above his head when they crucified him? Jesus, King of the Jews, and Jesus probably was a little smiling on the inside, though he was suffering for sin. He was smiling a little on the inside as an all-knowing God. No, no, my name is King of Kings, and it will be written on my leg, my thigh, literally when I come back. You'll see it when I come. In Israel, that is their promise. One final truth about the state of Israel is this. They have a crowning millennium. You can put that as your last note. Their crowning millennium. I think I have that back there, John. John's done a wonderful job staying with me. There he is. I thought I had that slide. I'll read one passage. We could read many. I would encourage you. I think I put in your notes there, Jeremiah 30. Go read it. It's fabulous. In the sense of how God brings his people back together and what he does for them. But since we're here in Revelation and because of time, we'll go ahead and look at chapter 20 and verse 1. From verses 17 through 21 in Revelation 19, the old devil is locked up. He's put in a prison. I had somebody ask me a long time ago when I was teaching them the book of Revelation, and we came to this. They said, why didn't God just annihilate him then? Since we've got about five more minutes Does anybody know why God doesn't just annihilate the devil? Throw him, go ahead and throw him into the lake of fire at this point. Anybody know? Want to venture a guess? Well, the devil, he doesn't care if he perishes, but but he's not willing that any of us perish. That's true. What did you say? What do you have to deal with? What are the three things that you have to fight against as a believer today? The world, the flesh, and the devil. What were the three things that Adam and Eve had to fight against? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the world system was pretty benign. (laughs) It was pretty good. But they still had the freedom within this world of choice, free will. God's given us free will. If God does away with this Lucifer, this devil, this Satan, and then goes into the millennial kingdom... They have a perfect rod of iron ruler, in other words, a perfect world system, 
and no devil. In other words, they literally will only have to suffer with the flesh. Is that fair to you? I mean, we have to suffer against all three, right? And the answer is God is always equitable. If you live in the millennial kingdom, which begins in chapter 20 and verse 1, if you live in that millennial kingdom, now, we who are believers will be raptured, we'll have a glorified body, we will have been part of the first resurrection. We will not be able to sin in the millennial kingdom. We will not be able to marry or be given in marriage, according to Jesus' own words. My point to you is this. Those that pass through the tribulation survive that holocaust and apocalypse. Those who survive and repopulate the earth, they will be able to sin. That's why Jesus rules with a rod of iron, not with a pillow of feathers. (laughs) He's got a rod of iron. It's an unflinching, unyielding standard. And in that rule, people will be able to sin and people will be able to die. You can go read Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 and you will see an allusion to that, that there will be people who will do that. It's crazy as it sounds. But the devil will be loosed at the end of the millennial kingdom because every human being, man, woman, boy, and girl, always must face the same three tests and temptations that you have to face. God is always just. None of us are going to be in heaven six and a half trillion years from now and go, you know what, those people in the millennial kingdom, they had it a lot easier than us. And God said, no, they didn't. They just had a thousand years where there was no devil, but then he was loosed. And a whole bunch of them turn against God. Isn't that crazy? He's been right there in Jerusalem ruling the earth in perfection. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and yet when the devil is loosed, they turn against him. In chapter 20 and verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw a throne and that and, and they sat and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, this is during the tribulation, and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, those people that died in the tribulation, those people that weren't believers in God that died in the carnage that happens when God's wrath is poured out, Live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, that they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth or in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Imagine the limited death in a thousand years and how quickly the world's population can grow. It'll be like the days before the flood. And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be torna- tormented day and night forever. In closing this evening, we, having looked at these nine 
simple points. <laughs> we should care for the state of Israel. But trust me, God cares much more for the state of Israel than you or I ever could. The Bible tells us that they will not perish from off the earth. There's nothing that can remove them. That does not mean that they can't be uh, under great affliction and suffer great damage and see great death toll. But I would finish by saying this. In these days, watch with anticipation the unfolding events. Know that we are to pray for the peace of Israel. The Bible tells us that. But understand that that peace that we're praying for will only and ultimately come at the end of their time of trouble or the tribulation. In other words, you always have to pray intelligently. Well, God, I just want a peace accord to be signed in Israel tonight. You're actually praying for the Antichrist. I, I didn't mean to do that. I know. And that's why I had somebody ask me. I had a friend of mine that does a lot of posting online. I do hardly to no posting online, as little as I possibly can. Well, haven't you posted pray for Israel? And I said, I always pray for the peace of Israel. But be careful praying for some kind of peace accord for Israel because that's not in the book. What you're praying is, God, when you come back, I understand how good it will be. And I long for that day. The apostles said it this way, Even so come, Lord Jesus. First in the rapture, and then in the return. What a joy it is to know the state of Israel is in God's hands, just like your faith and my faith is day by day. Father, help us as we...